Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I'm a professor of politics and public policy at the University of Stirling. This is chapter five, called What Insights from Wider Studies of Power, Knowledge, Politics and Policy Do Policy Analysts Need to Consider? Okay, quite a mouthful. Uh, this is probably the most important chapter of the book, and it's the one that will expand much more on the website, because I've really just started to scratch the surface of the texts that are relevant to policy analysis, but don't necessarily speak directly to policy analyst texts. Okay, so, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you the introductory messages and then encourage you to look for, you know, additional work as, as we go on. Okay, so it really prom prompts budding uh, students or analysts to think about the meaning of policy analysis, you know, at, you know, at its core, you know, what is it for and who is it for? And it also prompts us to reflect further on how we decide whose knowledge counts as high quality evidence and policy relevant information. So the chapter begins with texts that engage directly with policy analyst texts, analysis texts. And the first is Stone's policy paradox. Now, the policy paradox that she describes is that it's possible to define the same policies in contradictory ways. And that's not just different people disagreeing. The same person can entertain very different ways to understand problems and can juggle many different criteria to decide that a policy outcome was a success or a failure. Or the same population can report contradictory views to support a specific policy response and its complete opposite when asked about it in a, a survey. Therefore, I mean, the key point there is every policy analyst choice is a political choice. It's not a rational, optimal choice that everyone can get behind. In fact, uh, you know, there's a kind of famous um, theorem in economics and welfare economics that pretty much says there is no way, you know, given certain assumptions, there's no way to produce a choice that will benefit everyone. You know, this is politics. This is people winning and people losing. So Stone focuses on the factors that undermine simple, rational, five-step policy analysis. Uh, in, uh, so she says, you know, people find it difficult to act rationally in the way normally described. So it's very difficult to sort of uh, uh, process all information, rank your preferences, be consistent and such like. You know, people just don't think and act that way. The second thing is that people are social actors in a community. You know, they're not simply individuals making rational choices. And therefore, morals and emotions really matter. And she focuses a lot on the ambiguity of the values that we talked about in five-step policy analysis. You know, the values and goals seem uh, straightforward, but um, are actually ambiguous and subject to contestation and interpretation. So, you know, classics include, you know, equity. It's a very popular value that you apply to policy analysis. But it really involves working out costs and benefits to populations. Therefore, it hinges on which groups benefits and which groups costs we include. Or we might focus on um, liberty. Uh, so there's, there's generally a balancing act about freedom con, you know, from coercion by the state and freedom from the harm caused by others. Uh, so there's debates on individual and state responsibilities. And, whose behaviour needs to change to reduce the harm to what population. So in each case, this is about, you know, whose efficiency, whose liberty and such like. So in that context, policy analysis is about political actors using policy relevant stories 
to influence the ways in which their audience understands the nature of policy problems, the feasibility of solutions within this wider context in which people contest the proper balance between state, community and market action. So Stone talks about key elements of storytelling to try and you know, describe policy analysis as a story rather than this uh, rational technical document. So uh, key factors include the use of symbols you know, to sum up an issue or an action in a single picture or word, to include characters like heroes or villains to symbolise uh, the cause of a problem or the source of a solution. He talks about narrative arcs, you know, like uh, a battle by your hero to overcome adversity, the use of metaphor, use of ambiguity strategically to give different people different reasons to support the same thing, using numbers to make a case, and assigning causation. You know, essentially, the story is about who is to blame and who is responsible for, for doing something about it. Now, in the book, I've sort of slipped in a discussion of Riker there. Uh, so he has a sort of famous term, heristetic, which describes, according to him, structuring the world so you can win. So this is, this is about designing the rules in which people make choices, because those rules really matter to the, the choices that, that people make as a group, and exploiting how people deal with bounded rationality. So, you know, the, the kind of strategies he's talking about include make your preferred problem definition or solution as easy as un to understand as possible, and make other problems or solutions difficult to understand or process. So present them in the abstract or provide excessive detail. Then emphasize the high cognitive cost to the examination of many different options so that you can design a comparison of a, of a very small number of options to make sure that yours is, is looking good in comparison with the other. Now, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you do these things. Uh, but it just taps into this truism in policy studies that you know the evidence does not speak for itself. And instead, this is about people engaging in, in effective and manipulative communication and persuasion to assign meaning to that evidence. Now, that's good context for the second main text that engages with policy analysis. And it's uh, Backey's What's the Problem Represented to, to Be Approach, or, or Whopper. And her distinction is between problem and problematization. So problem might imply that an issue is fixed, identifiable, self-evident, well understood, take for, taken for granted. Whereas problematization describes the people in which people create po po policy problems as they make sense of them in practice. So Backey presents the six-step process to understand and reflect on problem definition. So first, What's the problem represented to be in a specific policy? You know, what's its alleged cause? What do people say a government should do about it? Which part of government or individual is responsible? Second, what presuppositions or assumptions underlie this representation of the problem? So that can be deep-seated cultural values about what is normal behaviour or deviant behaviour and what's the role of government in private life or family life. Third is, how has this representation of the problem come about? So these ways of thinking can exist for long periods or problems can be can exist before governments uh, feel the need to solve them. So, so what, what was the catalyst here? Fourth is, what is left unproblematic in this problem representation? Uh, where are the silences? You know, so this is focusing on the power to decide who or what is a problem and the powerless, uh, powerlessness of many people to challenge that choice. Now, a classic is 
uh, if you identify the, the problems, so-called problems within a population, uh, they can be caused by their own lifestyle or the ways in which the state interprets the behaviour. And that's a classic, uh, you know, profoundly different way of thinking about is this population actually problematic? And is it their fault or is it the way the state treats them? Fifth, uh, what effects are produced by this representation of the problem? So a lot of problem definitions, if successful, they can help close off debate. They can help stigmatise some populations and they really prompt us to ask who benefits from the current definition. Then finally, how or where is this representation of the problem being produced and defended and how can it be questioned and disrupted? So this approach highlights the relationship between our knowledge of policy processes and the ways in which we as analysts or researchers use that knowledge to pursue a policy analysis strategy. And that kind of approach helps us segue to a much wider literature on the use of policy relevant knowledge to address problems. So the next section is entitled Policy Analysis as Colonization, and it introduces uh, the work of Smith as an exemplar of the study of colonization in relation to the power to socially construct, in this case, indigenous populations, uh, almost always negatively, to assign government uh, burdens. And Smith, this is a crucial point, if Smith argues that researchers have been complicit in that subordination, colonization, using an image of Western scientific objectivity to prioritize scientific knowledge at the expense of indigenous knowledge. And um, so these kinds of insights help us think differently about five-step policy analysis. So for example, it should affect how we think about problem definition. Now, a lot of the conclusions of this kind of work is that instead of uh, researchers deciding that they have the ability to sum up populations and problems, they should seek to co-produce research with indigenous peoples and um, a lot of this research questions the willingness and ability of analysts to engage in that way. You know, there's a lot of lip service paid to it now, but I think the, the emphasis is on, you know, if, if you're going to do it, do it right and um, not many people are willing to do it right. And second, it influences how we think about how to generate and compare solutions. So the, the particular focus, I think, for us would be on cost-benefit analysis. You know, the, the, the classic cost-benefit analysis is an attempt by a researcher or an organisation to identify and compare uh, costs and benefits to populations with a single unit of analysis. Now, this, you know, in this new context, that is an exercise of power to decide how we should understand everyone's experience, place relative value on the outcomes and, and take a calculation of their value to one population and generalise it to others. Now, sort of overall, Smith is highlighting the limits to truly co-produced policy analysis, at least in the absence of you know, radical change or the you know, major redistribution of, of uh, resources and, and power. And so it highlights some of the questions in the chapter. Uh, there are some of the headings in there, which I'll just describe briefly here. So the first question there is, you know, can we describe policy analysis processes as co-produced or in relation to co-production if there's an imbalance of power 
and an incongruence of ideas between participants. So essentially, you know, often people will describe co-production, but, uh, you know, they have the power to decide what the agenda is and, and to, you know, sum up the results. The second question is, are such forms of policy analysis a deliberate substitute for changes to political practices? So there are quite a few studies that suggest that people use the language of co-production and, uh, you know, respect uh, as a sort of sheen, you know, as a way to signal that they're doing something without actually doing it. And the final question is, you know, does the production of a common agreement simply hide inequalities of power? So, you know, we'd see the, the write-up or the outputs from these kind of co-production exercises as, you know, some people winning about how to sum up what, what happened rather than this kind of, um, you, know, uh, you know, truly equal, truly agreed consensus product. Okay, so that, that leads us on to that, that can take us in lots of different directions. In the chapter, I have this brief description of uh, Hindesi's work, which is one of those texts that really kind of influenced me as, a, as an undergraduate in the olden days. And if you were to sort of sum up its main take-home message, it's simply that there's a lot of talk within this kind of field about uh, claims to superior knowledge, or, you know, the most uh, high-quality, policy-relevant knowledge. And his point, really, in a nutshell, is that you can only claim superiority according to the rules within each tradition of producing knowledge. So, to assert the supremacy of one form of knowledge is an act of power to decide how we measure useful knowledge, what criteria we use. And if there's no agreement on what the criteria are, then there'll be no agreement on what is high-quality knowledge, at least across different groups. You would find high agreement within groups, but it would be no, no more than that. So that in turn is context for the discussion of the next section, policy analysis for marginalised groups. So Doucet draws on these kinds of insights, often related to you know, phrases like yeah, critical race theory in particular, or critical policy analysis, to identify three guiding questions. The first is, for what purposes do policymakers find evidence useful? You know, sometimes it's in relation to the scientific quality or uh, the extent to which they, they draw on stakeholder knowledge, but sometimes people uh, or policymakers find evidence useful just to support their own case. Second, who decides what to use and what is useful? And third, how do critical theories inform these questions? So then to say, uh, goes on to recommend a, a collection of responses to deal with the, the imbalances of power that can further marginalise populations with research. And this is a five-step collection of responses. So the first is recognise the ways in which research and policy combine to subordinate social groups. You know, so this is the idea that policy and analysts might see themselves as objective and there to help uh, human dignity, but actually are complicit in marginalising some groups. Second, reject the idea that scientific research can be seen as objective or neutral, and therefore reject the idea that researchers are beyond reproach for their role in the marginalisation of groups. The third is give proper recognition to experiential and other forms of knowledge rather than privileging scientific knowledge. The fourth is commit to social justice through things like policy analysis. And the fifth is to centre race within those analyses. And uh, 
Okay, I paused there for no reason. Okay, now, uh, scholars such as Michner uh, provide a framework to understand the wider policymaking context in which these approaches interact. You know, they, they help us identify the rules and norms and practices that reinforce the types of marginalization and subordination we're talking about. And Michener uh, has produced this framework called the Racialized Feedback Framework, which, which would make much more sense if you go into the policy concepts and theories that we referenced in the previous chapter. Because you know, racialized feedback would relate to things like policy feedback. Okay, but this feedback, uh, th this, this framework helps explain uh, the ways in which racism and white supremacy have uh, uh, done what Michener calls uh, you know, pervaded social, economic, and political institutions, without you know focus on the United States. And Michener goes into key mechanisms that help us understand the context in which policy analysis might take place. So she has uh, four categories. The first is channeling resources. So those are the the rules of policymaking, the ways that you distribute government resources which benefits some groups and punishes others. Then you have generating interests in which you know race and racial stratification is a key factor in the, the, the power of interest groups and the balance of power between them. And then uh, Michener uses this phrase shaping interpretive schema. So race is a lens through which policy actors understand and seek to solve policy problems. And then finally, this balance between centralization and uh, subnational government, which can inf influence the extent to which policy design, uh, you know, uh, marginalizes or challenges the marginalization of social groups. So, I mean, obviously I've just scratched the surface of those kinds of texts. So I'm just sort of introducing some of these key texts and encouraging you to read the original sources. Uh, but for now, if you think, we can ask ourselves, what does all this add up to? And I think the key take-home point is that it helps us revisit this idea of a pragmatic, client-orientated policy analyst, which is what you would get from most of the, the classic five-step guides. And I think this type of analysis helps us provide a challenge to that common advice. So most policy analysis textbooks advocate a form of pragmatism, you know, art and craft. And they focus on client-oriented steps to produce just enough policy-relevant information to help define problems, identify solutions. So in that context, it makes sense uh, because pragmatism relates to the idea that policy analysis is art and craft and it's about focusing on what's possible, what's feasible. But in the context of the text we've described here, Pragmatism really takes on a different meaning. It becomes a euphemism for conservatism, an excuse to reject ambitious and necessary policy changes you know, in the name of pragmatism or feasibility. So our focus on a wider political context uh, should prompt us to reflect further on the relationship between power and policy relevant information when we decide whose knowledge counts and uh, the extent to which it contributes to you know, more or less radical policy change. So we're talking about people, instead of producing you know, rational, objective, scientific and policy analysis, they're exercising power to tell stories that benefit some populations and punish others. And they very deliberately draw on limited sources of knowledge to make their case. 
So these kinds of descriptions of policy analysis reinforce wider studies of power, which suggest that the, the most profound kinds of power are the hardest to observe. You know, so, uh, for example, actors use their resources to reinforce social attitudes and policymaker beliefs to reinforce how they think of target populations. And we're talking about uh, the use of knowledge to manipulate uh, uh, or exploit shared beliefs to identify some notion of the public interest or encourage social norms that benefit some people and, and um, harm others. And the, the point is that often a lot of these beliefs remain unspoken and are taken for granted in everyday practice. So you don't have to find explicit manipulative policy analysts to, to decide that you, you, you can see or theorise these unequal power relationships. And the final point there is, you know, that one of the most important exercises of power is to dismiss a population by dismissing their claim to knowledge. You know, it, it seems like a kind of fairly mundane debate about scientific knowledge, but this is really underpinning a wider discussion of, of politics and power. So in that context, this section or chapter identifies the ways in which policy analysis can help challenge such strategies when people are doing their work. It sort of prompts policy analysts to build in this acknowledgement of inequalities in relation to marginalised populations and pay more attention to inequalities in research and policy analysis practice. So in other words, don't treat policy analysis simply as a pragmatic, client-oriented activity because this perspective misses the bigger picture and contributes to the practices that help maintain inequalities. Or put another way, that kind of narrow pragmatism goes against a wider professional commitment to speak truth to power and foster human dignity.